Welcome to Pilates Elephants. Natalie Wilson, welcome to Pilates Elephants. Thank you, Raphael Bender. I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm happy to be here with you too. So um, let's talk hypermobility. This is a topic that I think has, there's, there's a lot of needless anxiety in the Pilates world around hypermobility. And I think that has kind of seeped sideways into just for many of us, an idea that you just shouldn't lock your joints in general, you know, even those of us who aren't hypermobile. I mean, I've heard that said in Pilates class many a time. I've actually said it myself quite a few times. Keep your elbows soft. Keep your knees yeah, soft. Yeah, which is kind of weird because in Joseph Pilates' book, Return to Life Through Contrology, published in 1945, I mean, the word, the phrase like lock your knees must appear like 50 times, you know, in that book. You know, knees locked, elbows locked um, is basically anytime your legs or arms are straight, he, he specifies that. Uh, and so, yeah, it's kind of weird that we've now got to, you know, mostly like the exact, you know, don't lock your knees. Um, um, so what do you, I mean, what do you, what do you see or what do you, what's your impression, experience, observation of the, you know, beliefs and practices around hypermobility in 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 place. I guess what do you what what do you think what's the elephant here? Well, I think you named it already. The elephant in the room is that there is needless anxiety about working with people who are hypermobile. And I guess maybe even like do we even understand what it means to be hypermobile because honestly, only I only learned about it through you in the last couple of weeks. The Baton score. Right. So if you can bend your finger your little finger back at 90 degrees, if you can touch your forearm with your thumb of the same hand, uh, if you can extend your elbows and your knees beyond 10 degrees beyond straight, if you can touch both hands on the floor flat with your legs straight, um, each one of those things gets a point. So you've got a po- total of nine possible points, one for each little finger, one for each thumb, one for each elbow, one for each knee, one for your hands on the floor. And if you get five or more out of those, then you have uh, you that you meet the diagnostic criteria for joint hypermobility. Yeah, I mean, so I think... Oh, what, what's going on in my head right now? When I was first trained as a Pilates teacher, it was taught to me that um, locking any kind of joint is not good. So, I mean, I think maybe one of the things I'd love to put on our list of things to talk about is if you have any ideas of this origin story, like why why did we why do we say that? Why did we learn that? Um, but yeah, it was always told to me, you know, they shouldn't, if people have hypermobile knees, that's especially the one that I'm thinking of. It's just like if they're doing footwork and they push the carriage all the way out and their, their legs start to bow, like, oh, that's bad. Don't do that. Keep your, you know, keep your knees soft. Don't go into like hyperlock mode. That was one thing that, uh, was, that was something I taught and was I corrected a lot of people on in my early days. So that that's one thing. And then the other thing, and this is something that I hear not frequently, but frequently enough that people there are there are people in my universe, in my Pilates universe, who say they're hypermobile and that because of that they have to be extra careful when they move. You know, so like they have to use light dumbbells, they can't lift heavy. They have to watch their range of motion. 
Um, and you know, the thing is, I actually have been diagnosed as hypermobile by uh, one of my physical therapists. I didn't know this until I was probably 40. Um, but I had mentioned it. We, I was, I was seeing him for something else. Oh, I had a really bad sprained ankle and I just started saying things. He's like, let me test you. I think you're hypermobile. And he was like, oh yeah, you are right on the edge. And what I learned, um, this, the last couple of weeks, you know, with all of the systemic issues that come with hypermobility, it's like, oh yeah, check, 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 check. That makes a lot of sense. And of course, like I'm, I'm just diagnosing myself based on some of the information I'm doing exactly what, what other people are doing, but it's all really interesting stuff. But I think the main part of our conversation should just be around, you know, whole person framework, gradual progressions, trying not to be fear-based, just trying to move in a way that, that feels good and it's challenging. Yeah. All right. Great. I didn't know that about you. Um, I think there's a kind of a sub point there maybe that one of the, one of the, I think, misconceptions about hypermobility is that it's a biomechanical, it's, it's only a biomechanical situation and that, you know, the problems and solutions to hypermobility all lie in the joint range of motion. And so the problem in hypermobility is the joints are too flexible and the solution is don't move them through full range. Um, whereas in reality, hypermobility is a systemic condition because it, it stems from more, uh, extensible connective tissue, you know, higher proportion of elastin in your, in your joint, in your ligaments, joint capsules, tendons, et cetera, and, uh, less organized and less dense collagen fibers in those same tissues. And so your, your ligaments, tendons, joint capsules are more springy, more elastic, more stretchable. Um, and that just allows you to have greater range of motion, which can be good and bad depending on the context. But also uh, your intestines, our intestines are surrounding connective tissue. So our intestines are more flexible and elastic, which means that they don't have as much pressure pushing inwards into the food. You know, an intestine is just a, a tube of muscle surrounded with connective tissue, and and we push our food through the through the digestive tract by the muscular action of the of the intestine. It just kind of squeezes sequentially, kind of like I remember when the the Wiley Coyote Roadrunner cartoons. You know, the Wiley Coyote's got some kind of hose scenario where he's trying to hose down the you know, the roadrunner and nothing's coming out. So he looks down and then you see this bulge of water coming down the hose, right? Well, that's kind of what your intestine does is it kind of squeezes the, the food through. And, uh, of course, when your connective tissue, which is an important part, a structural part of the intestine, is more uh, elastic, there's less pressure pushing the food through. So your food doesn't move through your intestines as quickly. So you have less intestinal motility, therefore more digestive issues. You know, so people with, with hypermobility tend to have more irritable bowel syndrome, you know, poorer uh, digestion, et cetera. Um, and then of course your blood vessels are also tubes of muscle surrounded by connective tissue. And so when your connective tissue is less, is more elastic, they push inwards, you know, there's less pressure on the blood vessel, so you have less blood pressure. So people with hypermobility tend to have lower blood pressure and feel dizzy and faint more often when they stand up from sitting. And uh, yes, yeah, so, and there are a whole bunch of 
uh, you know, like your nervous system is encased in connective tissue. Um, so it, it changes the way that the, the brain and spinal cord function. Your, uh, you know, all of your muscles are uh, structured, you know, the structural components of your muscles, not the contractile parts, but the structural parts are made of connective tissue. And so if you have less or more elastic connective tissue in your muscles, it means your muscles don't contract as forcefully because when they contract, it kind of just stretches the muscle you know, structure more rather than actually pulling on the joint. And the tendon that the muscle pulls on is also more elastic. So rather than pulling on the bone, the tendon just kind of stretches a bit, you know. Um, so there are a whole host of issues that happen uh, that go along with um, hypermobility. And one of them is increased pain. Um but it's interesting uh, and that the pain that – so people with hypermobility don't actually have more or pain more commonly than non-hypermobile hypermobile people. But when they do have pain, they have typically more intense and widespread pain. And, and the pain that uh, people with hypermobility experience – doesn't correlate to which particular joints are hypermobile. Like it's generalized. So people with hypermobility have more pain, more like pain related to, um, you know, all kind of stimuli, like um, felt experiences more intensely. Like if you prick them with a pin, it's more painful than if you prick someone who's not hypermobile with a pin because the nervous system responds differently, not because there's some kind of biomechanical fault necessarily. Yeah, that resonates with me so much. Like all those things that you described, like those are all things that, again, make sense to me <laughs> in my my own body. Yeah. And as to your question, I don't really know where that came from, the like the don't lock your joints thing. I mean, I guess it must have come from physiotherapy. I don't imagine it came from dance. I think in dance they, I mean, don't ballet dancers lock their knees? I, I don't really know. I don't know. I mean, they look like they do. They have beautiful lines. Yeah, I mean, you I think I guess their elbows and things, sometimes they keep them soft. I mean, I really, I'm way out of my depth here. I don't really know. The ballet. <laughs> the ballet they hands. do keep the, you know, New York New York City ballet, ballet hands. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't really know where that came from. What do you, like, when you, when you say, like, you know, unnecessary anxiety, where do you, how do you see that manifest? Well, I think from, you know, if you're the instructor and you were told that your clients should not be locking their joints, that's really where I think some of the hypervigilance comes from and the overcorrection, right? Like that, that's the case for me. You know, if I, if I was walking around the studio watching people do, let's say, footwork, I'm just looking at their knees, constantly looking at their knees. Um, and I was telling you off air, I remember very vividly one time I was in a workshop of some sort and someone brought up, you know, what do we do for clients who hyperextend their knees during footwork? And the trainer got out a TheraBand, had somebody lie down on the carriage, press the springs open, and then placed the loop of the TheraBand underneath the knees and was standing above the client holding and putting a little tension on the TheraBand and basically telling the client, giving them this tactile cue saying, if you press out to the point where you start to stretch the TheraBand, you've gone too far. So it's just like as the instructor, watching clients 
to make sure that they haven't gone too far because if they do go too far, what's going to happen? I guess n- none of us wanted to find out. I didn't want to find out what bad thing could happen because then that might lead to injury or like, yeah, injury. It just occurred to me that there's this is so symptomatic of, I think, I, I, I think it's one of the fundamental you know, points I disagree with about how um, movement is taught, not just in Pilates, but in physical therapy and 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 exercise like PT, like personal training as well. But I think it, it's very prevalent in Pilates. This notion that if we move, you know, a little bit differently, if we turn the leg in or out or adjust the weight where the weight is in the foot or straighten the knee or bend the knee or, you know, control some of these movement parameters of about alignment that we're going to make some kind of difference to somebody's health you know and that you know bending your knees 10 degrees versus hyperextending them 10 degrees is somehow significant is you know is going to result in some different outcome for that person or you know keeping your neck long versus letting your head come forward is going to, you know, result in some different health outcome for that person. Or, you know, I don't know, like pulling up your kneecaps. Like I was, that's one I've I've heard quite a bit. I'm still not quite sure how to do it, but, (laughs) you know, or having our, our scapula sit flat and flush on our rib cage is going to somehow give us some benefit that we won't obtain by just doing the same exercise and not worrying about where the scapula is. I think I think this is a fundamental kind of belief underpinning a lot of these kinds of notions about stability and movement quality. And I just think it's not supported in 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 the literature. It's like there's you know, I mean, if we think about hypermobility as this systemic condition involving more extensible connective tissue because of a different ratio of collagen to elastin and and a different arrangement of the collagen fibers, and that that affects the digestive system, the circulatory system, the nervous system, you know, the like the urinary system, the the muscular system, the skeletal system. It's like okay, and then we think like okay, not extending your knees is going to somehow make a difference to that you know it's like it's almost like if somebody was in hospital with i don't know stage four cancer and we're telling them don't hyperextend your knees that'll make it it's like it's just we're, we're barking up the wrong tree i think yeah well and that was the big aha moment for me when we were covering hypermobility um in the diploma a couple of weeks ago is i don't i was never taught that hypermobility is a is a systemic issue which is why I just sat there with all of this information thinking, oh my God, I meet almost all the criteria for the systemic issues that come with hypermobility. Um, but I think one of the things, you know, if, we're, if we bring this back to the Pilates industry, one of the things that I can say is somebody who has anxiety issues and who is hypervigilant in all parts of my life, including my body, one of the things that I've always struggled with um, being a Pilates practitioner is the idea, this mind-body connection. I really struggle with this idea of mind-body connection because one of the things that I, I really am naturally is very hypervigilant of what's happening in my own body. So when a, when a, when I'm in Pilates class and the teacher is telling me, 
make sure you don't hyperextend your knees, make sure you only bicep curl this much, make sure, you know, all these things like ensure this, ensure that, breathe in on this cue, breathe out on this cue. It's, just, it's so overwhelming for me because the the thing that I want most in an exercise session is to not think about my body because I'm constantly thinking about my body. Everything, I'm a walking nerve. Um, and, and I don't know if that's because of my personality or because of my little bit of hypermobility, but I do feel everything. Um, everything hurts a little bit more. Everything feels a little bit more. Things are brighter and louder and all kinds of stuff. So it's just like, I don't need that. <laughs> I don't need those cues from my Pilates teacher to to constantly be monitoring every little thing to make sure I'm doing it correctly. It's It was really anxiety provoking and it was a lot of the reason why I stopped going to class and just started doing um, video recordings on mute. <laughs> that mirrors the research that I've seen uh, that a lot or some significant amount of the pain and disability uh, in hypermobility is influenced by psychosocial factors, including excessive focus on body sensations and a tendency to negative emotions and a pattern of uh, too much or too little or both activity, you know, like boom and bust cycle. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, we did an episode a while ago on uh, body awareness, and I think body awareness can be a good thing for in some circumstances for some people and a negative thing in other circumstances for other people or even for the same people in, in different circumstances. And there's there's certainly a, a situation where hyper-focus, hyper-vigilance on one's own body sensations, like, you know, if you're sitting, if I'm sitting here right now completely unaware of my body, I'm happy as Larry, but if you say to me like, okay, scan your body, do you have any pain anywhere? I'll be like, mm, actually, my knee's a bit uncomfortable, you know? And so now now I'm aware of discomfort that I wasn't aware of a minute ago. It's like, well, how is that helping me? <laughs> You know, um, and I think when you have a nervous system that is sort of like physiologically primed to be more sensitive, then, you know, dwelling on body sensations is probably not helpful. It's not helpful at all. It's actually quite harmful and it really caused me a lot of stress. So it was a lot of distress. You know, one of the things that um, I can't help I, it, in teaching, in being a teacher and then also teaching people how to teach, the way that you teach, your teaching style, is, I think, is really autobiographical. You take with you the things that you've experienced. And for me, one of the things that I like to talk to our students about is the idea that when you're the teacher, when you're the person up in front of the I was going to say the stage, but Pilates is not a performance, everybody. I think teaching to a certain extent is, there is an element, it is performative, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I definitely felt that way <laughs> early on. And you're right, there, there, is a, there is a professional coat of confidence, as Kyle Marsh would say, that you put on when you're a teacher. One of the things that I talk to our students about is the idea that, you know, when you're the teacher you are essentially the steward of your client's attention. So how are you helping them? Where are you 
helping them put their attention to. And and for some people, that would be body sensations. It would be trying to pay attention to what's happening in your body. And we talked about how this might be a beneficial thing for some people, people who are very distractible and they don't spend too much time thinking about being present in their own body. I think of my husband, it was a good example. He, he would like to be more in a meditative state thinking about his body, but there are people out there, myself included, the last thing I want to do is think about my body. I would like my Pilates teacher as the steward of my attention to help me focus on other things like pushing the spring a little bit further or, you know, reaching a little bit higher or, or, or anything, anything outside of my, my sensations of my body, because I mostly want to feel dead <laughs> because I feel alive. I feel ultra alive all the time. I do actually want to just feel dead. I don't want to think about my body because then I think about every little, <laughs> every little niggle, every little pinprick, like, and it's just, yeah, it's not how I want to live. It's interesting, and I, you know, my personal bias is is aligned with what you just said. I I don't I dislike I I feel I just predispositionally dislike sitting and focusing on oh how does my elbow feel what's my breath doing where are my ribs like that just irritates me. I do love the experience of being, uh, I guess, aware of my body in a more I guess, you know, less cognitive fashion. Like when I go for a really hard run, right? And I'm like, typically when I run, I think about stuff. I think about work or people or, you know, whatever. And, or I, sometimes I do maths in my head, you know? Um, and, but when I run above a certain speed, I can't do that anymore. And I, I, I know that I'm into that zone when I, I try and calculate because normally I, I'm on a treadmill and I'm thinking like, oh, how many kilometers have I got to go or what speed, of, you know, will I, am I at how long many minutes will it take me or whatever. And when I just can't add up like 12 plus six, I'm like, I'm not getting an answer here. Then I, I know that I'm, I'm running at a high enough intensity that basically conscious thought starts to recede and I just am running you know i'm not thinking about running i just it's just that's what i'm doing you know my brain is doing it as much as my body is doing it and i i know you know most people listening to this well i've had this experience whether it's running or kayaking or in pilates class where at the end you know you're just in that you're just the the movement is so demanding that it demands your attention and you don't have the option of considering which part of the movement you pay attention to or anything that you just like fully immersed in just doing it. And I guess that's also a flow state, right? And then the experience afterwards, when you finish, and I remember doing this after yoga classes as well as like you lie on the floor and all you can do is just breathe, right? And it's not, you're not thinking about your breathing. It's just like just lying there with your eyes closed and breathing is like the most pleasurable thing, you know, because it's not like you're not in down dog anymore, you know? (laughs) And it's just that moment, like when you're back in child's pose after doing, you know, whatever plank or push up or whatever it was, and you're just like, you don't have to think about focusing on your body. It's just like, you're just in that moment and just like breathing or not moving is feeling the ground or whatever is really a pleasure, but it doesn't, I love it. You know, those moments to me 
are unprompted and uncued, it's like, well, you can't not have that experience if you push yourself to a sufficient intensity for a sufficient period you get to a point where it's like, well, you, you, you actually don't have any conscious attention available for extraneous thoughts or worries or doing math problems in your head or, or whatever it might be. You've been there, right? No. Been there. I'm listening to you and I'm like, God, I don't think I've ever had really? that. <laughs> you know what it is? It, it is because I'm so conscious of every sensation in my body. And, and actually, this has happened several times. Um, I, my nervous system cannot get away from how hard my body is working and it goes into shutdown mode and not shutdown mode of the kind of like awesome shutdown mode that you have. It goes into shutdown mode. Like you are dying. You need to stop. And there have been times I don't run anymore. I used to a lot more. There were times when I would be running and I would get close to this flow state that you're thinking about. And the next thing I know, I'm not even aware of it, but I'm walking home like I haven't finished <laughs> I haven't finished my loop I'm just like wait a minute this is not the right way oh my body's just telling me it's time to go home um and it's it, it's the only thing I can attribute it to is like the the sensation of pushing my body so hard and it's gotten worse with with age I think um I I cannot my nervous system does not tolerate pushing my body that hard anymore which is why I have a hard time taking Heath's and Adam's classes because when they're like, can you go a little more? I'm like, fuck you. No, I cannot <laughs> go <you>. anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah. That is so fascinating. Um, so, yeah. That, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I work out. But, you know, the thing is, like, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, one, of my, one of my students sheepish, embarrassingly and sheepishly told me that she no longer um, – wants to come to my 50 minute class because it's too much for her that she would rather do a 20 or 30 minute class and I said to her you know there's no shame in that it's totally fine and honestly for me in my personal life I typically do about 30 to 30 minute workouts a day sometimes I do 20 20 15 it just depends on what's going on in my life but I have just gotten I tend to do better with shorter workouts you know, I can have intense bursts. It's more like hit and things like that. But my body doesn't like anything more than that. And so I've had to break up what used to be a one-hour workout into, you know, more frequent, smaller workouts. But I do have one day a week. I have a long 90-minute, very hard walk with one of my friends. And it's the only time I can manage it is because we're talking and gossiping and just being girlfriends. And it's the only time I can manage it. And otherwise, I'll try to do the exact same walk on my own. And I'm like, mm -mm, nope. I, and before I know it, I'm, I'm turning home and I'm, <laughs> I'm not doing it. So yeah, that's, that's my, that's, that's been the evolution of my fitness journey in my middle age. That's so fascinating. And uh, it's a great strategy actually, just in general to break up your workouts into smaller chunks. If you, and this is just for people who have pain or injury or are unfit or whatever, and you're like none of those things in particular, but certainly not unfit. But, uh, you know, like if you can't run for five kilometers, but you want to, but you can run for two kilometers, we'll go for like two or three short runs and bam, there's your five kilometers and you still get the same miles in. Um, but you just don't have to do it all in one, all in one hit. Uh, and the, the actual, the physical benefits are just as much, if not more, from doing, 
know, multiple shorter workouts because you probably do more intensity if you do three 20-minute workouts than if you do one 60-minute workout. You'll get more fatigued. That's part of the strategy for me is like in, I can go harder, <laughs> but not as long. That, uh, I'm just still processing what you said, that you've never had that experience of kind of getting into a flow state when you run or, or, or work out. Because to me, I just assumed that was a universal experience. I'm sure it's a common experience. But obviously, it's not universal. Would you call that? Um, would you call what you just described a runner's high, or is that something different uh, to you? What I think of as a runner's high is not the same thing as that. It it is a it's a high. Like so, so the the experience I described a minute ago was what I think of as a flow state. It's like basically where conscious thought stops, and you're just existing in the moment of doing you know the activity. And whereas a runner's high, and and so that 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 flow state is not particularly pleasurable. It's there's just there's an absence of pleasure or pain. You can't put it on a scale of pleasure and pain. It's just you're just existing, right? There is no particular pleasure or pain associated with it. It's just you're just there. Um, whereas the high is something that happens generally after you you run. Uh, for me anyway, I have had it like during a run on occasion, but it's like only very long runs. But I find that if I run uh, about six kilometers at 12 k's an hour and it like or more, right? So if I go further or faster or both, but if I, if I don't run that far or that fast, I don't get it. I get this high, which is kind of a very mellow sort of euphoria that lasts the rest of the day. And so I'm just walking around the rest of the day feeling mildly euphoric, you know, and it also makes me feel clean inside, like what Joseph describes as an internal shower, right? I understand what he means, but I think I understand what he means by that because that's what it feels like for me after I run six Ks at 12 Ks an hour, I get that. And so that's, you know, that's my daily run, right? Six Ks at 12 Ks an hour. Cause that is like, that trips me over to that threshold where I get that run as high and I'm experiencing it right now. And it's just, then it lifts my mood for the rest of the day. That's amazing. I don't get it from running. I get that from coffee. <laughs> I get a slightly different high from coffee for me. I love coffee and I love the, the, the high from coffee, but it's a bit more, frenetic it's it's a bit more busy in my mind whereas the runner's high is quite calm mm, i just feel very euphoric and i feel alive and i feel like life is worth living with coffee i was talking with my girlfriend uh the, today because she's she said she was drinking tea today she's like i was being very british today and i drank tea and i was like oh you know tea's fine i like tea i will drink tea but coffee is like it's the last thing i think about at night like last night I was brushing my teeth and getting ready for bed and I was so happy because I was like, oh, in the morning when I wake up, I'm going to have coffee. Yeah. And that's how I went to yeah, bed. <laughs> and then that. I woke up and I'm like, mm, coffee. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. All right. So back to hypermobility. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me this – I guess I'm, I'm still – my mind's still reeling on this whole conversation <laughs> about <laughs> – body awareness and being present in in your body um but yeah i think those those the idea about you know it about controlling 
the position of the joint, there there is, I think, like many things, there's a grain of truth in it or a grain of value in it. Like one, one thing that people who are hypermobile, you know, experience more frequently than people who are not is uh, dislocations, joint dislocations. So the kneecap can sublux, you know, can become dislocated or you know, shoulder dislocations, et cetera. Uh, and so for somebody who has had previous history of multiple kneecap dislocations, for example, and the vulnerable position for that is when the knee's fully extended, because when the knee's fully extended, the quads are relaxed and there's no and even if the quads are tensed, there's no pressure pushing the knee, the patella into the trochlear groove in the in the femur. So when the knee dislocates, it's generally going to be when the knee's straight or, or hyperextended, not when it's bent. And so for that specific person who's got a history of dislocating their knee when it's hyperextended, there's a value in saying, okay, well, let's not hyperextend that knee, right? Because we don't want to dislocate your, your kneecap. But for somebody who doesn't have a history of dislocation in that position, you know, there's no particular reason not to hyperextend. We don't have any research showing that hyperextending correlates with more pain or less function or, and it's kind of weird. Like when you think about, you know, like people think like, oh, isn't it like bad for your knees or isn't it, you know, might the knee like snap backwards and snap, you know, bend the wrong way, you know, but it's like, it's kind of weird that we think about, okay, well, just imagine you're doing footwork and there's a bit of tension on the springs and you keep your knees slightly softened, right? So your knees are a little bit bent, not fully straightened. Well, you know, there's tension on the quads there in that situation that's holding the leg and stopping the leg from bending. And then if we go the other way and hyperextend the knee 10 degrees past straight, right? Well, now there's tension on the hamstrings holding the knee, right? So it's just the same, it's just a mirror of the same biomechanics. The joint, I can't, I'm I'm picturing the inside of the joint, the ACL, the PCL are not particularly uh, tensioned in that position, as far as I understand it. You know, the posterior joint capsule would be under more tension. The hamstrings and popliteus would probably be under more tension. But, like, I, I can't really see, well, why would that be a problem? You know, like, we do actual ham- exercises for the hamstrings to put them under more tension called hamstring curls, and we think that's a good thing. So why is it a bad thing if if the knee's hyperextended? Like, yeah, it just doesn't quite make sense to me, like, why that would – what how biomechanically that would be a bad thing thing. Yeah. What's interesting, I was thinking about what you were just saying, and you know, all of the all of the clients in the past whom I've corrected when they hyperextended their knee, they didn't even have any idea they they were hyperextending. And obviously when they did it, it didn't bother them. But of course I think that when I pointed it out, it probably they probably started thinking about it more. Isn't this isn't this like we've we've we're it's not a problem, right? It's not causing them a problem. They're not even aware they're doing it. It's not so so little of a problem. They don't even know they're doing it, and they can't even tell they're doing it. Even when we point it out to them, they're like, "Oh no, I can't feel a difference." And so we're essentially just making up a problem where there isn't one, and then For correcting her. it. I think we do that a lot in Pilates. 
you're doing this thing that you've been doing all your life that's never caused you any discomfort. Stop doing it. Right. That'll be $20. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More than that. Come on, Raph. You know what racing price is. <laughs> um, yeah, isn't it? Isn't it weird? Yeah, well, and I guess maybe, and you know, um, I guess the way I see it is people who are hypermobile are people like anybody else. And isn't it a good thing for us to put safe and appropriate amounts of tension gradually on all of our joints for all human beings so that we get stronger so that if we're ever in a compromising position, our tissues can handle it. Like that to me is like the big takeaway from all of this learning that I've been doing in the diplomas. It is good to get people stronger. It is good. It is good for, for life, right? Like the whole idea of return to life, um, just Pilates is you exercise so that you can have a good life. Like you can do the, you can do the things mm. um, so that you can have a good life. Right. So, yeah. Another thing that, that seems kind of bizarre to me is we have this idea like knees and elbows, you know, shouldn't be locked. You know, it's bad to go beyond neutral, but with your hips, it's good. You know, it's like, okay, if I can't touch my toes, that's not good. If I can do the full splits, you know, I'll do a forward fold so my chest is flat on my thighs. That's good. Right. And, and, yeah, it's, it's just like, well, why is that? How is that different? You know, like we just, or or if I if I if my swan dive looks like a plank, you know, that's bad. If my swan dive looks like a crescent moon, you know, that's good. <laughs> so it's like, well, in some joints, more mobility is a good thing. In other joints, like the knee and the elbow, more mobility is a bad thing. Somehow, you know, it's like it just doesn't kind of. And, and then in other joints, like the fingers, right, if you can bend your finger back 90 degrees, which I can't, I can do my, maybe 40 degrees. <laughs> um, I saw you in that video. It was really funny. I was just doing, I was doing it myself, like. Probably 45 degrees, yeah. I reckon. What about your, your thumb? Get out of here. Like, I couldn't even touch oh. my other forearm <laughs> with my thumb, let alone this one. <laughs> um. So, you know, but then when you, when you do that and you bend your finger back, like, I think, I mean, we don't have a really strong culture around that in Pilates. Like it's not considered to be a good or a bad thing. I think it's just like, oh, that's just an interesting thing. Like some people can touch the tip of their nose with their tongue and other people can't. So it's like, okay, well, your fingers are hypermobile. That's neither good nor bad. Your hips are hypermobile. That's good. Your knees are hypermobile. That's bad. You know, and hypermobile, hyper just means more than usual. And mobile is how much you can move, right? So if your hips can move more than usual, you know, the average range of motion of a hip interflection for an adult, you know, is about 80 degrees. So if you can forward fold to your chest flat on your thighs, that's 140 degrees or something. So it's hypermobile. It's more than more mobile than the average, right? So that's a good thing. And and I agree. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> um, I, I wish I could do that. <laughs> um but it's just weird that we have these double standards. What do you make of that? I mean, what I make of it is that we have these double standards and if those double standards existed across all walks of life and art, we wouldn't have Cirque du Soleil. We wouldn't have the circus. You know, we wouldn't have gymnastics and ice skating and all of these things where people do amazing things with their bodies. 
and they're all right. They do it for a living. They get paid to do it. Can you imagine what it would be like to go to a Cirque du Soleil where they couldn't, they were they were limited in their range of motion. It would just like be me, me performing at Cirque du Soleil. Well, so I saw something on social media the other day where someone was saying like, I think it would be better if the, with the Olympics was just done by ballot and it was just like some random person pulled from the population, you know. Here's, here's Darren. He's a 39-year-old electrician from Quebec, and he's going to do the uh, you know gymnastics beam. You know, I actually would love that. I think it would be so fun to watch normal people do normal movement. <laughs> One thing that I found really interesting about the hypermobility um, information is that, I, and I learned this actually from my physical therapist, was that just because you're hypermobile doesn't actually mean you're super flexible. I'm hypermobile, but I'm not flexible in the ways that I wish that I could be flexible. I can't, I can't, you know, do beautiful, like single straight leg stretch. I have a really hard time doing a rollover where my feet are touching the floor behind me. I can certainly not do that crazy thing. What's the thing that we do off the reform? If you're lying on the reformer, that cannot do that. Mm -mm. I mean, I, I can a little bit, but it's really ugly. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't have flexibility in my, in my hamstrings, the kind, the kind of flexibility that I wish that I had, like my hypermobility, just, I was telling my diploma study group, it's just bothersome. Like I have bothersome symptoms, not the kind of thing that would make me better at, at Pilates. My wife's the same. Jules, she can bend her fingers back, touch her thumbs and her forearms. We just did this the other day because we were talking about hypermobility, but she struggles to get her hands flat on the floor, can't do the splits in any direction. Um, yeah, doesn't have particularly flexible hips or, but she's dislocated her shoulder a hundred plus times. Super. I was going to say, yeah, she has a janky yeah, shoulder, right? Not anymore. She had it uh, operated on a couple of years back. It's better than, better than brand new now. Um, but yeah, so it, it, the hypermobility, her hypermobility, like yours, I guess, is specific to particular joints and who knows what the genetic sort of origin of that is. Um, but you do have, you said, you know, a lot of those other systemic symptoms like digestive issues and, and uh, hypermobile people are also have a much higher incidence of uh, anxiety disorders, agoraphobia, panic um, disorders. Uh, and, you know, this, this is fascinating to me because – You know, then when we, as Pilates instructors, sort of encourage people to be hyper vigilant and fearful of movement, it's like, well, this is a person who's already probably by nature hyper vigilant and fearful and anxious and prone to worry. It's like, okay, well, do we need to encourage that? No, we don't. I'll just answer the question for you. No, we don't. Yeah. Yeah, it did not serve me. I mean, and that's part of the reason why we're here today is just I needed to find a community that could support me personally as well. Like, because it, I was very, I am very hypervigilant um, and it does bleed into all other parts of my life, including including how to teach Pilates. And I, you know, I, I, I'm thinking of another colleague of mine who is hypermobile and, um, I can see a lot of those characteristics as well, just the hypervigilance and just the being very careful, not only how she moves, but how she asks her 
her clients to move. And one of the things that I think is just because I'm this way doesn't mean I should, you know, I should impose that upon my my clients. You know, just because you want to reduce the range of motion because she has a shoulder that is prone to dislocating doesn't mean that somebody else has to do really small arm circles without, you know, hands and straps. Like they can do it. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, what other, I'm curious, because uh, I could only think of the knees, but when you were teaching the way that you did when it came to hypermobility, what were some of the things that you looked out for in your clients or that you taught other teachers to look out for when they were teaching? Uh, definitely elbows, you know. Um, elbows. Mm -hmm. When you're doing planks, things like that. Oh, um, uh, yeah. What's that? Uh, and spinal segments. So it's great to have lots of spinal mobility, but uh, and I'm I'm putting air quotes around everything I'm saying at the moment. But it's bad if certain segments of your spine are more mobile than others. So if you quote dump into your low back or you know hyperextend at your L5S1, and then the rest of your back just has normal or even good mobility, uh, you know it's not good if some parts of it are more mobile. Um, that was my sort of thinking. Um, I, I think that's probably, you know, probably it. Although in Stott Pilates, we were taught, and this wasn't really a hypermobility thing, or I wasn't aware that it was. We were taught that the neck should always follow the line of the thoracic. You know, that's Stott Pilates, you know, principle number four or five or something, head and cervical placement. Uh, and it says, yeah, yeah. At rest and in movement, the the neck should continue to line of the thoracic. And of course, the thoracic spine has very minimal flexion extension available to it. It doesn't move through a very large range, like ten degrees or something, of of flexion extension. If you're talking about the upper thoracic, and of course, the neck has like ninety plus degrees of extension available to it. Uh, and so, if you keep your neck in line with your thoracic at all times. It's like, well, you're reducing your neck range of motion by like 80% plus. And it's like, okay, that, like, what, what's the rationale for that? <laughs> Again, like that, why, why is that important? It just seems like a needless thing to worry about. Um, and in fact, it's like not what Joseph instructed now in Swan Dive, you're supposed to like extend your neck as much as possible um, is what he he recommends. Um, so yeah, so I'm not sure if that was really hypermobility specific, but yeah, I think the spinal segments and the elbows and maybe the neck, um, but it wasn't really specific to hypermobility. It was just like no one should extend their neck, you know, like that, which is kind of weird. The neck one, the neck one annoys me. It really does. The neck one annoys me because I feel like our necks were made to look up. <laughs> We look down so much of the day, you know, it's like, look up. And I, you know, when we teach like pulling straps or what we call, what I call a dart. So if you're lying on your belly or if you're lying on a box on your belly and you just um, extend the whole body, right? So you're, you're creating, the way that I was taught is you create a long line of your body from the top of your head to your toes, your one long line. It's, you're basically doing like, I don't know, a Superman pose or, you know what I'm talking about? Like you just extend. And um, when I got over this whole idea of keeping your head in line with the rest of your body, I, I still, to this day, I have to tell my students, I say things like, create an upside down rainbow with your body. 
would it be nice if you looked all the way up? Like when you're pulling straps, look, bring, bring your eyes up towards the ceiling. See if you can look up, you know, just, just to get people to use that part of the body because otherwise you're either upright and looking down or the only time you're ever looking up at the sky is, you know, I mean, if you're looking at an airplane or if you're looking at the rain clouds or whatever. But yeah, I was taught that too. Keep your head in line with your it's spine. It's so weird because in in other areas of Pilates, we favor full range of motion, right? So we, if we're doing, I don't know, a leg exercise, like we want to do full range, right? So we're just saying we're doing like leg circles or front splits or side splits or whatever. It's like, it's, to my mind, it's kind of like assumed that full range is better than half range, right? And I agree, full range is better. And that there are anatomical and physiological reasons for that. Um, but in the neck, so say your anterior neck muscles, your deep neck flexors, your mastoids, your hyoid, all of those front neck muscles, it's like, well, they never get to be fully lengthened unless you fully extend your neck till the back of your head's resting on your upper back, right? So if you want to strengthen those deep neck flexors, et cetera, through, you know, wouldn't it be better to do, do it through full range? Like, why it's just again it's just such a weird concept to me that we would just keep the neck in neutral at all times basically yeah you've done episodes before about good and bad muscles and there should be an episode this episode is going to be about good and bad ranges, and of, bad motion. ranges of motion <laughs> 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 yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, yeah you're totally right you're totally right we do we do have them make really big circles and feet and mm. straps you know like Really big ranges of motion. Yeah. Um, but limited range of motion. You know, the other thing I was thinking about, you were talking about how um, the cue where you have to keep your scapula like flat on your back. I have never, ever understood that because I don't have any perception of my scapula. I have no idea what they're doing. I don't know what they're up to. I don't know what it means to keep them whatever I, they asked me to do, keep them, you know. I remember one time, someone was behind me. We're doing some kind of postural analysis or whatever. And someone's like, oh, you're winging. And I'm like, I can't tell. I wouldn't know how to fix it. I wouldn't know what that means. What does that even mean? Do you, are you, are people able to control their scapula? So winging, you know what winging means. It's where the, the medial border of the scapula comes off the, the posterior border of the rib cage. And you've got little angel wings. And uh, so that is generally uh you know, considered, you know, most people would say, okay, your serratus anterior is underactive, maybe a pec mine is overactive. Uh, and there is a biomechanical sort of plausibility for, you know, greater serratus anterior activation would pull the, the medial border of the scapula onto the ribcage because that's where it inserts into the anterior side of the medial border of the scapula. But then the question is like, well, why would that necessarily be a good thing? Like, it's like, why is it important that you're, scapula touches your ribs you know like <laughs> why is that important who cares you know like um uh and so can people consciously control it? totally i mean all of our skeletal muscles the muscles so we've got three types of muscle in our body skeletal muscle smooth muscle and cardiac muscle skeletal muscle are just you know what it says it's like the muscles that move our skeleton so they're muscles attached to bones and then you have uh, smooth muscle, which is in your intestines and sphincters and things like your, your, your bladder sphincter and your small intestine, your stomach. It's all smooth muscle. 
Uh, and then we have cardiac muscle in the heart. And the difference between skeletal muscle, smooth muscle, and, and cardiac muscle is smooth muscle and cardiac muscle are not under conscious control. So you cannot consciously contract your heart or your intestine uh, or your, you know, you know, bladder or whatever. Your bladder is just a, a, a ball of muscle. You know, your stomach is a ball of muscle. You can't consciously contract your stomach. Um, we some of the sphincters that control like circular muscles that control orifices like your bladder orifices are skeletal muscle so they are under conscious control the 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 primary difference between skeletal muscle and smooth muscle and cardiac muscle is skeletal muscle can be consciously controlled like you can consciously control your biceps you can't consciously contract your small intestine and so uh, for any skeletal muscle including serratus anterior your traps your whatever you can learn to consciously contract that, right? So that's just a skill and some people are going to learn it easier and some people are going to have a harder time doing it, but everyone can do it. Um, and so, yeah, we can, you can totally train somebody to keep their scapulae flat and flush on their, on the rib cage. Like that's, we can train people to ride unicycles whilst, you know, playing an accordion, sure. you know, um, doesn't mean it's better for their health though, you know? <laughs> I, I disagree. I think learning how to unicycle and play an accordion at the same time would be so much more beneficial to my health than learning how to stabilize my Probably would be very good for your <laughs> cognitive health. I would agree with that. Yeah. And a great party trick. For sure. Yeah, for sure. And and your first step uh, towards uh, performing in Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, I could probably do that. I need to stay low to the ground. I couldn't do any of those body contortion things, but I, yeah, that would be a job I could do. Well, there were, I mean, I saw the Cirque du Soleil performance uh, quite recently here in Australia and it was on ice. I can't remember the name of it. Um, But they had a whole, I've seen a few, I've seen them three or four times now and mind blown every single time, but they have a range of people. And so they had people in this performance that were just incredible human contortionists and just could do things that you just think like, oh my goodness, I didn't know human, the human body was capable of that, you know? And then there were people that were just incredibly skilled. Like there was this juggler that was juggling like 19 things, you know, like whilst ice skating on one leg backwards, you know, it's just like incredible proficiency at this skill that he must have practiced thousands of hours, tens of thousands of hours. And then there were people who, and he didn't have any particular crazy flexibility or anything. He was just a really good juggler. Um, and then there were these ice skaters that were just like speed skaters and they would like dash onto the, onto the kind of uh, performance space at like breakneck speed, you know, jump over these obstacles, weave in between each other and around everything else, like you know, missing everything by millimeters and then disappear into the backstage all in five seconds, you know. And they would just look like regular kind of teenage skaters, but just like incredibly skilled, you know, <laughs> ones that were just choreographed perfectly. So I think Cirque du Soleil, like we think about people doing incredible back bends and whatever, but that's only part of it. I think that's what they put on the on the posters. Because someone doing a 240 degree split on standing on someone else's head is a very spectacular image, whereas someone speed skating at like 90 kilometers per hour isn't a spectacular image necessarily. <laughs> and and someone you know, juggling 19 you know, raw eggs or whatever, I mean, it's 
it is pretty cool, but it, I just don't think it's as arresting as somebody doing the splits or an incredible backbend or whatever. So I think that just stuff we don't necessarily associate with Cirque du Soleil, but I think there are probably people in Cirque du Soleil who can't touch their toes, um, uh, but they're just really, really freaking good at, you know, this one thing that they they practiced for a lifetime. Yeah. I think we need to appreciate more. I, I don't know that I, I've been, I've been so in my own echo chamber of, of the Pilates industry lately that I don't know what what the general zeitgeist is out there, but it feels like there was a period of time I was in the Pilates industry where I, I feel like there was this, this push for uniformity. You know, like we all needed to raise our arm a certain way and we all needed to push out the springs a certain way. And I just feel like, you know, talking about this, talking about Cirque du Soleil and all of the different um, very. The, the ways that human beings are different, including people who are hypermobile or flexible or less flexible. It's just, this is, this is the human condition. Like we're all really different. And there's part of it is just like that needless anxiety. It's like, let's put that away because at the end of the day, we all are different and we all have different things. And I think that's what makes the world go round. Like when you were talking about Cirque du Soleil and how not everybody is flexible or bendy, I was thinking about, um, my uh, my kids play soccer and it's the end of the season and they were we were at a game last night and they are put in different positions because they have different skills right so some of them are really nimble on their feet and they can do really amazing footwork and they have great kicks so they can kick the ball into the goal and then you have other people who are really really strong and really good at defending and they can like burst and save the day and you know like find that ball and it's just like it's that's what makes the world go round is like people have lots of different variability and are good at the things that they're good at. So we should just be okay with that and just relax. Let people push the springs out as much as possible. Totally. I mean, if you put me in a Pilates class, I'll be able to do three times as many push-ups as the second strongest person in the room. But I'll be crying like a baby when we start to do the ab work, and I'll be you know, stop. I'll be on the easiest setting and stopping before anybody else, you know. And in the, in the flexibility exercises, I won't be able to get into start position for most of them, you know. So, and I, you know, I mean, people are different heights, weights, lengths, widths, flexibilities, you know, muscle fiber composition, etc. And yeah, so absolutely. However, I think I think it is possible to take it too far in the other direction. So I I, I 100% agree that we shouldn't expect or require people to look the same when they move because people just aren't plainly aren't the same, you know, <laughs> like people aren't the same. That should be self-evident and uh, you know, people have different level of ability in maths and English and joke telling and, you know, hieroglyph reading. And, and, and so why wouldn't we have different levels of ability in doing the splits or push-ups, you know? Um, however, I think there is, it is possible to, to go too far the other way. And in my view, sometimes when it's kind of like, well, I guess I, I guess I do want to say, I think anything that gets people moving is infinitely more valuable than than them not moving. 
right? So it, literally any form of movement, even if you never work up a sweat, never contract a muscle beyond 20% of its maximum, it's like even that is infinitely better than not doing it, right? So I, I want to encourage everybody to do do what cranks your tractor. But I think at the at the other end of the spectrum from like kind of rigidly expecting everyone to look the same and make the same shapes with their body and, and whatever – make the same shape with differently shaped bodies, which just seems bizarre. Um, we have this kind of like free jazz, there is no right or wrong, doesn't matter what you do, it's interpretive dance, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you know, like I said, I, I do see a value in that because movement inherently is valuable and anything is better than nothing. Like anything, everything is better than nothing. But if you're going to spend an hour or half an hour or 20 minutes moving, like there are ways of moving that are going to give you more value in terms of health and lifespan than other ways. And so, you know, you need to get to a certain level of intensity, you know, and if you want to increase your range of motion, you have to go to end range. And, you know, so so there are certain things that are going to make a difference. And if you don't, and, and technique is important if you want to, for instance, if you want to work the front muscles and the, the abs and the shoulders and stuff, well, there's a difference between a plank and a squat. You know, they're not the same movement, right? So so, so if I say, hey, everyone, do a plank, and then Natalie's off in the corner doing interpretive dance, rolling around on her back, and, you know, it's like, okay, well, she's having a great time, but you're not going to get the same benefit from that movement that the other people in the class are getting. Your abs aren't going to get stronger, right, <laughs> from doing that. So, But I'm glad you're here, and I'd much rather you be rolling around in the back in class rather than sitting at home on the sofa drinking wine. You know, it's much better for you. But as long as you're here, like, why not just do the plank, you know? It's true. Yeah, we've talked about we've talked about the um, butting up against the edge of chaos versus the edge of rigidity. It's somewhere, it's somewhere in the middle. Uh, so, um, before, before we, before I forget, because I think this is the part that maybe people are just like waiting for the punchline is what do we do for people who are hypermobile? Like, how do we, how do we help them? How do we teach them? Like, what do we, what do we need to keep in mind when we're working with people who are hypermobile? Well, I think, and I've, I've, I think, you know, like probably the, the core message at the heart of my understanding uh, of current best practice is that we should all be movement optimists, by which I mean that we should, our default assumption should be that movement, any movement, is both safe and beneficial for anyone. Now, that is not always true. There are some specific examples, for example, loaded flexion for someone with osteoporosis, you know, where certain movements aren't indicated for that person. Now, we actually don't have any evidence that flexion is dangerous for people with osteoporosis. It's based on expert opinion, based on, you know, working things out from basic physiology. So it's plausible, right? But we actually don't have any evidence that it's dangerous. So our default assumption should be exercise is safe and beneficial. And 
if we know nothing about anything, but we just assume that for everyone, every exercise is safe and beneficial, we'll be right 99% of the time. And therefore, our assumption and and our like we could take that even further and say that for almost everyone, it doesn't really matter what sort of exercise you do as long as you get sufficient intensity and volume, right? Just do what you freaking enjoy, right? <laughs> and work your muscles under load through full range a couple of times a week, however you like to do that, and it's all good, right? And it doesn't matter if that's like walking, deadlifting, classical Pilates, interpretive dance, unicycling, like whatever, you know, it's all good. And it doesn't matter whether you do it in quote good form or quote bad form, you just get exactly the same physiological health and longevity benefits. So I think our assumption should be movement safe and beneficial and anything's just as good as anything else as long as you've got enough intensity and volume in there. And therefore, our assumption should be like, well, there's nothing special to do for these people. You know, whether we're talking about these people means hypermobile people or people with scoliosis or people with diastasis or people with, you know, atherosclerosis or people with back pain or people with shoulder, you know, rotator cuff pain or, or whatever it might be. It's like, just give them regular exercise. You know, older adults, pregnant women, kids, like, yep, just same as everybody else. <laughs> and so even people with cancer, <laughs> Same as for everybody else. People with arthritis, yep, same as everybody else. Now, for for some of these groups, there are one or two specific considerations, right? So if somebody's undergoing immunosuppressant therapy and cancer treatment, we should be aware of infection control, right? Um, if, if someone's post-surgical, we need to be, you know, a, mindful of tissue healing times. Um, you know, so there are specific considerations in certain circumstances, but the default should be, if we're talking about the normal range of people you see in a group Pilates class, okay, it's probably not going to have someone with stage four cancer and someone else who just had a hip replacement two days ago and, you know, whatever. It's like just, okay, some people who might be a bit unfit and some people who might have some non-specific neck pain and some other people with a sore shoulder and someone with osteoarthritis in their knees. It's like just the normal range of people, Right. Your assumption should be, and if one of those people is hypermobile, your, your assumption should just be like, yeah, let, let's just get them moving. And who freaking cares what angle their elbows, knees, or whatever is at? Doesn't matter. Like, let's just move people. Like, do some more push-ups. Do some more, do some more roll-ups. Do some more footwork. Uh, and, and so I think the, if there was one message I could give, it would be that. It's like it doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't matter. It's not like we're focusing on the wrong thing. You know, we're focusing on the wrong thing. And for people with hypermobility, the the issue, like they do have like health issues, right? And those manifest in many ways, like we said, digestive, nervous system, circulatory, you know, musculoskeletal, lots of different manifestations. But they're not they're not a result of their joints going into the wrong position. The joints going beyond where most people can go is one of the symptoms. It's not a cause, it's a symptom of hypermobility. And 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 pain is also a symptom, but it the pain is not a symptom of the joints going in further. 
the joints going further and the pain are both symptoms of something else, right? So changing where the joints are isn't going to change shit about shit for you know, any of the other stuff that's going on. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like the band playing while the Titanic sinks. Like it, it's it doesn't do anything, <laughs> you know. I love that movie. No, I like it. I like it. I think the only thing I would add to that is, um, apart from I love the movement optimism um, position, um, Heath says this all the time, start easy and build gradually. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And if something, if, if something is intolerable, then see if you can switch it up a little bit. And we do have, I mean, we do have research into this. We've got uh, not a lot. We've got a couple of studies taking you know people into the hypermobile range versus keeping them into neutral. Uh, we've got studies of hypermobile people with heavy strength training. Um, you know, and and they guess what they show they all benefit equally. You know, just get them moving. Doesn't matter how. Take them to the hypermobile range. Don't take them to the hypermobile range. Whatever. Like it's all good. There's nothing particularly good about going into the hypermobile range. It's just like it doesn't fucking matter. It just doesn't matter it just doesn't matter you know so it's, it, it's it's irrelevant that was a really interesting thing to learn that when they when they compared exercise where you stayed beneath the hypermobile range and then you went into the hypermobile range that it just didn't matter the outcomes were the outcomes were the same that was really interesting i think we do that a lot in pilates and like i said before i think that's a symptom of a biggest kind of assumption the assumption being that if we change the way someone moves that's going to change something profound about their health and I, that just doesn't seem to be true. The fact that someone moves will profoundly change their health. Or that they got out of bed or that they saw you and they really like you or they saw their friend at class and they really like their friend or they got the Pop-Tart after class because that's, you know, the best thing about Pilates. All of that stuff, right? All of that stuff. It's psychosocial health. It's 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 social support. It's um you know, positive expectations, positive emotion, it's releasing endorphins, it's systemic anti-inflammatory effects of exercise, it's improving circulation, it's improving sleep, it's improving mental health, you know, it's improving, improving cardiovascular health, it's improving functional capacity to do things in life, pick stuff up, walk upstairs, etc. All of these are the true benefits of exercise. And none of those derive from anything to do with alignment or activation. It's just actually just the whole package of getting moving and the the surrounding components of that are the therapeutic relationship, the the people you see at class, the the social aspect, all of that stuff. It's a complete package. And the the which way your kneecap's facing or whatever is just an irrelevant distraction, you know, in that. Now like I said, I I don't I'm not at the interpretive dance end of the spectrum, right? I think if we if I'm teaching someone footwork, I think there is a correct way to do footwork because it's an actual exercise and it's like you you know like there's a way to do it. And if you do it a different way, it's not footwork. Like if you did it with your hands on the bar and your feet on the foot pads, like okay, that's not footwork. That's long stretch, <laughs> right? <laughs> but so so if I'm teaching someone to do footwork, my instructions aren't like I oh, just do whatever you want; it doesn't matter. Right, I say, put your foot here and put your other foot here and put your hips here and your hands here. Like, there's a way to do it, right? But it doesn't make any difference to your health whether your feet are positioned correctly or your knees are bent or what. It's like, it's just not like if you would join the Pilates Olympics, 
you know, like you wouldn't get a perfect 10 out of 10 score for your footwork if your feet are crooked on the bar, right? That's just, it's not, it's not as, as faithful a, a rendition of the movement, but it's like you'd get the full health benefits of doing it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, the gym that I used to go to is one of the, it's actually the place that I was inspired to become a Pilates teacher, the gym that had free childcare when I was, was neck high and like toddlers and postpartum anxiety and depression. Um, there were signs all over the gym that said, just think you're lapping everybody on the sofa. And I really love that. Yeah. Yeah. You just gotta be, you know, just the, the, um, just the practice of getting up out of bed, getting dressed and having something that you can do and then doing it is such a beneficial thing for people who, um, who are struggling with mental health. That's, Mm. that's something that, you know, that just get up, just do one thing, you know, do one thing, get Mm. up out of bed go brush your teeth, go have a cup of coffee, you know, just do one thing. So yeah, I, um, that's one of the best things with working at a Pilates studio is watching people just show up and they, they decided to show up and do something with their day. And then of course, like I said, across the street, there's like homemade pop tarts. Yeah. So what should you do for people with hypermobility? I'd say be genuinely pleased to see them and show it. Congratulate them on getting off their ass and getting to class introduce them to other people in the class and encourage them to make friends, give them positive feedback for their effort, strengthen them up, invite them for a Pop-Tart afterwards, tell them looking forward to seeing them next time. Bam, that's what you do for them. That's it. (laughs) Easy. Is that the same thing we do for anyone else? Oh, it's a thing that we do for everybody. From cradle to grave, everybody. Yeah. Good talk. Good talk. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means You keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, 
and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.